You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocus Church. We hope this message encourages you and leaves you feeling challenged to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're grateful for our loving Father that we can come and worship and praise His name this morning. I'm always so thankful for that opportunity to be able to do that together. I do want to let you know, however, that even as we worship Jesus today, that the end of the world is coming soon. This whole thing's about to be wrapped up. You say, Pastor, are you doing some kind of weird prophecy right now? (laughs) Would you do anything differently if you knew today was your last day on earth? I mean, good start, you're here at church. If you knew the end was imminently near, how would that affect what you do the rest of the afternoon? The Bible actually gives us some strong directives if we're living life with what would be called an eschatological lens, or depends on how you pronounce it. Some people say eschatological, potato, potato, it doesn't really matter. Eschatology, what is that? It's the study of what the Bible says about what's going to happen during the end times. And even when I say those two words, end times, there's a lot of things that start firing off in your mind depending on your upbringing and and how you've grown up or whether you've grown up around the church or what type of church you grew up around or even if not at all. And I would say there are a lot of different thoughts that are going on in our head, a lot of different viewpoints about the end times, and a lot of them are super unhelpful. I mean, I grew up in the era of the rapture frenzy. Like 88 reasons why Jesus is returning in 1988. That's a real book. You can get it on Amazon. I think he wrote again in like 89. 89 reasons why it was going to happen in 89 and then 91 and he passed away in 2000 something so or else we probably have 22,023 reasons why it's coming back this year. I remember coming home and some of you have heard my story before but the the only way I could check to make sure that I was good and that Jesus hadn't left me behind was get on the rotary phone and, and call the people that I know love Jesus. Okay I don't see anybody let me call my grandma. Let me call, you know, and you had to wait. Like it wasn't just text and get a response. It was like, oh, Jesus. Nobody answered. The panic level rose. But here's the reality. When I read scripture, because I think about the fact that There is an end coming, and yet it's not something to be frenetic about or to be frenzied about. There are very real fears that I had as a kid, and probably many of you have had, and and people have played on those fears and made a bunch of money capitalizing on that. But there's a better way to approach living according to God's word in what is known as the end times. We can have a healthy eschatology that has a better, better impact on our lives 
than, than a cheesy country song or, or a Kirk Cameron movie. And my apologies to Tim McGraw and any Left Behind fans. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me today as that will be our text as we continue in our series, Chosen Exiles, looking at the book of First Peter. Maybe we'll get to Second Peter before Jesus comes back. It says, verse 7, the end of all things is near. That's how I started off this service and all of y'all just started getting really tight. Oh my gosh, what kind of church is this? Okay, I'm just repeating what Peter said. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we ask that you would bless your word today as it is read and as it is looked at, that you would change us from the inside out. This is the word of God. So as we continue in our series, Chosen Exiles, most of what we've covered thus far is the Apostle Peter writing to these exiles in Asia Minor, letting them know how to live and to deal with the persecution that they're going through as believers. Yes, they are natural exiles. They are really real-life aliens, if you will, in the land. That's not where they're from. They've been exiled, but they're also believers, meaning they're spiritual exiles. So he's teaching them and writing them how are you supposed to respond to those that are outside the church while you're being persecuted. But he pivots right now and he changes and he switches his attention to how the Christians are going to relate to one another. Here's how you're going to treat one another in the midst of persecution and in the difficulty that you're going through right now. How many of you know that it's hard to treat each other kindly in the way that Peter just said, with love, when you're going through difficulty? Like when the, the, the level of anxiety rises, your love factor towards others starts to dissipate. Your patience starts to go away. First thing he says is, the end of all things is near. I mean, it seems like an odd exhortation to me on how to love one another. But here's what he's saying. The end of the world is coming soon. Notice, however, that when he says this, that the end of all things are near, the end of the world is coming soon, that he's not doing so in a panic. He's not doing so in a frenzy. He doesn't follow up with a pitch to buy uh, uh, someone to build you a bunker or to load up on MREs or to invest into gold. And if you've done all those things, okay. But why? Because here's what Peter does. Instead, he informs them that they should pray and how they should pray. 
And then he informs them how they're supposed to live towards one another in an ethical manner. Isn't it interesting that our response when things are going to end or we know that something bad's going to happen, like a hurricane is coming or possibly some type of bad weather, isn't it interesting that our response typically to cataclysmic things is anxiety, control, and power grabbing? And Jesus' response is instead sleep, peace, and prayer. Peter is writing from experience. And we've talked about this, without this throughout this series. He's writing from experience of not responding to difficulty with anxiety and control and instead with prayer because he knows what it's like to respond to things that are falling apart with anxiety. When he cut off the ear of the Roman guard, and tried to circumnavigate what the father was trying to do through the son. Peter's eschatology is informing his ethics and now he's writing to the church and he's saying to us, your beliefs should affect your behavior. In this case, don't panic, pray. In this case, don't get in a frenzy, but be at peace. On the opposite end of this eschatological lens or the belief about the end times according to the word of God, on the other side, there's just as much if not more danger. We've got the freaking outside, but on the other side, instead of living in fear or trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back, which Jesus himself said that you shouldn't do, he said, nobody knows except the Father, not even the angels. So why do we spend so much time trying to figure out when it is, when he said nobody's going to know? But there are also on the other side, the opposite end of the spectrum, those who live as if there is no end at all, and that final judgment's never coming. If we're honest, all the crazy stuff about the end times, at least in my generation, and judgment and being left behind, all of that stuff, if we're honest, has caused us to be a little bit embarrassed in the church to even talk about it at all. And yet it's real. It's going to happen. There's coming a time when Jesus will return. And as the message uh, interpretation of the Bible says, it's going to wrap everything up. And all things are going to be righteously judged by the righteous judge himself, God. And eternity is going to begin. To live otherwise, the Bible says, is just plain foolish. Let's dig a little deeper into the language and the meaning of the word, the end. When Peter says in this first verse, in verse 7, the end is near, that's the Greek word telos, and it can refer to end in the sense of termination or conclusion. Everything's about to be concluded. But also in the New Testament, it has this sense of, here it is, the goal to which a process is being directed. And I think this is really what Peter is saying here, the goal to which a process is being directed, the goal to which the saving purposes of God is directed is at hand. So the question is, has the end arrived or is it only imminent? Has the end arrived or is it only imminent? And the answer, it seems to be both. 
First, clearly, the end has come in what God is doing through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said it. It is finished. The end is here. I have taken care of death and hell and the grave and purchased redemption for all who would call on my name. That is the end, the beginning of that end, if you will. His work of salvation and the redemption on the cross has been finished. But just as clearly, Peter is referencing all things in verse 7, and he's saying there's a cosmic transformation that we've yet to see. It's not yet been realized completely. This means that Peter's statement here registers the present as the end, but also clarifies the end as a process yet to reach its completion in the final judgment. I believe what's happening here for us is what commonly happens in the New Testament, and that is that the final salvation of Christians, the end, is being set before the believers, these believers who are in exile, to stimulate their faith and to encourage them in the difficulty. My question is, is that what it does for you? It's what Peter is doing for these exiles, because you, if you've given your life to Jesus, are an exile as well, is what he's doing by saying, listen, the end is here. It is both now and in the future, but it is coming. Does that stimulate your faith? Does that encourage you in the difficulty that you may be walking through right now? Because it's not just unbelievers who live as if there's no end in sight. And Peter's making a point. You believers, you Christian exiles, we need to live with the end in mind. Here's my attempt to crystallize a little bit of this in a statement. It's a long one, but I'm just trying to help us wrap our minds around how do we live this way without being frantic and frenetic, but also not being apathetic. The foolish live for today with no thought of tomorrow, as if there are endless tomorrows, and without regard to eternity. The exile lives today with the knowledge tomorrow may never come, and yet without worry about tomorrow, because their hope is in an eternity of tomorrows with Christ. Maybe one of the iconic bands of my era had it right. The end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Not apathetically, but with hope. That yes, it is going to all be wrapped up and finished at some point in time that I don't know when. Point being is that it matters that it's going to end. We are in the now and the not yet, which is where we are caught as believers. And no matter how ridiculous some prophetic stuff has been about the end times, or no matter how many theologically erroneous books have been written, the Bible is clear that there will be a climactic display of God's justice and love where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And at that time, the chosen exiles, God's people, will be ushered into their final reward, which is endless praise to the God in heaven for eternity. The end is near. The goal to which the saving purposes of God is directed is at hand, is what Peter is saying. Contrary to popular belief, 
The world is not getting better. It's not improving. I mean, we think that it is because of all the stuff that we invent and come up with and use to make life a little bit better. But we can have flying cars. We can colonize Mars. That rhymed. That was weird. And still people are going to hate each other, hurt each other, and abuse one another. Yes, some things in our life are easier, but just because things have been made easier doesn't mean that our souls are getting better because of it. You see, the world is only going to be redeemed fully as a result of God's infusion of grace and justice in the end. It's called the day of the Lord in the Bible. And this is the end to look forward to and have hope in through what? What Peter has been talking about at the beginning of these chapters, in Christ Jesus our Lord who has saved us. This is the glorious day that everything is progressing towards, Peter is saying. This is the end that is at hand, the day when Christ will be praised by all, the day when God will be acknowledged by all as God, when the lion will lie down with the lamb, when there will be no more wars, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sickness, when people from every race, tribe, tongue, and every man and woman will put thousands of years of hostilities and divisions and prejudices aside permanently forever. And yet all of that is impossible without God's intervention. And so Peter's saying, in the meantime, there are some things to do in order to persevere until that day comes. And one of them, shocker, isn't to hole up in a bunker somewhere, but it's to pray. To persevere through prayer. And as we work towards justice and peace in this world right now, we pray for God's sovereign intervention. Exactly how Jesus taught us to pray. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven until heaven completely invades earth. Therefore, we see in verse 7, and it's a word that we notice, we talk about often, what is it there for? Verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore, and it introduces the ethical implications of this realization that Christ is going to return and there's going to be an end day coming. So don't live like there is no tomorrow, but live as if tomorrow isn't promised. Jesus taught this himself. And this is really where Peter is, he's basically regurgitating what he lived out with his Savior and what Jesus taught him. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is teaching, here's how it's going to look in the end. And he says this, it's not necessarily on the screen, it won't be, I added it too late. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Guess who answers him and asks a question? Peter. He's like, Lord, is that illustration just for us or for everybody? Yes, he realized it was for everybody because here he is telling us the same exact thing. Christians are not supposed to buy into an eschatological end times frenzy. But instead, practice self-control and be active in prayer. And how did he say to be active in prayer? To be alert and sober. And we can remember Peter's bad experience in the Garden of Gethsemane and his lack of prayer 
when he wasn't alert or sober, and he responded with anxiety. It says, therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. And the words there, alert and sober mind, are exhorting us to discern properly how to pray, that we would pray with wisdom and understanding, not being frantic or afraid. Pray for God's will to be done. Pray for his kingdom to come. As we look forward to that final day, we pray that we would live in what he then goes on to say in an ethical manner that is full of love, that's full of hospitality, and is full of us exercising our spiritual gifts. Have you ever noticed the more frantic and freaked out we get, as I said earlier, the, the less loving we become and the less hospitable we become? I don't have time for that. Yeah, just, just wanted to borrow something. I'll go back and use something else. And we're certainly not going to be exercising our spiritual gifts. Peter's saying the reason we need to love, the reason we need to show hospitality, the reason we need to utilize the spiritual gifts that God has given us through his Holy Spirit is because someday we're going to be judged for how he did these things, and we don't know exactly when that day is going to be. I wonder, again, how frequently we examine our lives in the light of eternity or of God's just and fair judgment that the Bible says will come. Once again, we find ourselves most probably in a situation where we have overcorrected in the church. We've overreacted to the generations before that preached a lot of hellfire and brimstone. You know, it's like some, some stuff that we think about Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, which if you've ever read that message is actually nothing like the title sounds. But it's how we think of that generation, and maybe there was a lot of threats and a lot of sermons on, on hellfire and judgment, but our response is typical, is an overcorrection. So now we've neglected the theme of judgment altogether, and everybody wins, and love wins, and everybody goes to heaven, and we've erased hell. Yet the very theme is foundational to a Christian view of ethics, the foundation that God is a righteous judge, a loving father and that we're accountable to him for our behavior and it has a definitive effect on how we live when we believe that. Not in an unhealthy fear, not in an I'm scared to death of an evil taskmaster, but a fear that leads to holiness in the way that we live. We said this early on in the series, I'm not afraid of God. Fear of the Lord is not to be afraid of God, it's to be afraid of living in such a way that dishonors God and defames the name of Jesus. I read in 1 Peter, and as I continue to read, I see believers who are seeking to survive as a Christian community in the face of persecution. Peter's encouraging them, giving them hope. And we may not have the same struggles facing us today when it comes to persecution in our context, but we do have the same struggles as it relates to sin and temptation and a general apathy towards a life of holiness and the things of God and how we live. Yeah, well, you know, one day. And you know, the older you get, the closer that one day comes. 
Therefore, I see an importance of a loving Christian community called the church, and Peter's saying this as well, for helping all of us walk in a manner worthy of our calling when it comes to the gospel, and that would include what? Praying for one another, loving one another, showing hospitality towards one another, and exercising gifts so as to strengthen one another in serving the body together. These are all clear methods for sustaining faith and for handling opposition to the gospel, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And the effect of doing these things, as it says in verse 11, or you could call it your ministry. We often talk about what's my ministry. Your ministry is to love one another, to show hospitality to one another, and to exercise your spiritual gifts together in the church to the praise of God through the glory of Jesus Christ, is what verse 11 says. Let's go back to verse 8. So let's talk about this ethical way of living in light of the fact that the end is near. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. The expression above all speaks to the priority and the preeminence of love. This is the word agape, right? This is God's kind of love. And it's a Christian virtue that as we wait for the day of the Lord that is coming, we learn to live in light of that. Again, we don't hole up in some kind of holy huddle. We engage in life in such a way as doing exactly what Peter said to one another. He's already said this in previous chapters how we're to relate to those on the outside that we're, we're reaching out to and we're loving with the love of Christ. But now he's saying as we wait for the day of the Lord or our day with the Lord, whichever comes first, we are to love. That's a Christian virtue that we're supposed to do as we progress towards the end. Our love for one another is, is difficult. And this is why he's exhorting us. Can, can you agree with me that loving each other is hard? Okay, y'all, that wasn't a real good agreement because I know it is. I mean, that should have been, yes, brother. Yes, pastor. It's hard. It's hard work. That's why he says deeply love one another. A love for others is, is difficult. And here's the thing. A love that transforms our culture and our society into the church is more than a response to people we like. That doesn't get anybody's attention. It is a virtue that dominates our thinking and our actions so that we ask questions like, how do I act lovingly to that person that I want to punch in the nose? Oh, wow, I got a reaction from that one. Okay, well, let's, we need to go back to that prayer part. How do I act lovingly to this person that I have a disagreement with? See, there are people in our church with whom we might have a disagreement. How do we respond lovingly to those people? And if you think that you're going to go to church and not have a disagreement with the people in that church, you're lying to yourself. Do we ignore those people so as to avoid conflict? That's some of our approach. Do we gossip about them so as to strengthen our ego and damage their reputation? That's some of our approach. Do we pray against them? Or do we seek them out as to create reconciliation? Do we pray for them? Do we speak kindly to them and of them and about them behind their back and to their face? See, when love is preeminent among believers in the church, then Peter's saying we behave differently. 
and it's noticeable to the praise of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. And then he's saying this love is to be eager, earnest, or as our translation, the NIV we read this morning, deeply loved. Such love can be commanded because it's not primarily an emotion, but a decision of your will that leads to an action that is loving. Well, I just don't feel like it. I don't care. I just don't feel like loving them today. I don't either. You know how many people have loved you that didn't feel like it? Namely, Jesus loved you, and he felt like it, even though you didn't deserve it. And the reason for us to show love is what Peter goes on to say. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Man, this is so powerful. This is actually a quotation from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. And it does not mean that our love atones for our sins. Only Jesus can do that. But in the proverb, the meaning is that love does not stir up or broadcast the sins. We cover sins. We don't absolve them. We don't ignore them. We cover them. The, the word there, cover, means to veil or to hide, to conceal, to sweep over. We're like, oh, we, we do that? I'm going to use an illustration for y'all. See where, oh, there's Matthew. Which side's he coming from? There's Johnny. Oh, nobody knows what that is. I'm old. I really don't know what that is. That's so bad. Okay, some of my multi-generational older folks know what that is. Um, and it's not the shining. So um, here's a, a blanket. And, and here's what this, this means. What Peter is saying is cover sins. He's basically saying put a blanket over it. For the sake of unity. And y'all know y'all put some blankets on some stuff that y'all covered up. Especially your couch. And your chair. I'll, I'll just put a blanket over it. Just like new, Grandma. Like new. You ever been to your grandmother's house and she's got blankets all on top of everything? Like it's brand new furniture. Why we got a blanket on it? I want to get anything on it. I'm covering up some stuff. But the reality is, is when we put a blanket over something, we're trying to cover it. And it's not making it disappear. It's not when you remove the blanket that it's going to be gone. It's just for that moment, we're not going to broadcast it. We're not going to draw attention to it. We're just going to cover it. You know how a little kid plays hide and seek? I ought to get Josiah to come sit up here on stage and let me cover him with his blanket. Can you get up here and sit us applesauce, crisscross applesauce? Hey, man, what is going on in this church today? All right, so Josiah used to be a lot smaller than this. Maybe we're playing hide-and-go-seek, and then he just does this. Where's Josiah? Where's Josiah? I can't find him. I can't see him. Well, he didn't go away. I just covered him. Still pretty obvious. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. You don't need help like I do to get up. Here's what Peter's saying. You're not absolving it. You're not making it go away. You are covering it. Hiding it for the sake of love. And here's what love does. First Corinthians, remember 13, that love chapter, it does not dishonor others. But look what they did. I'm going to cover that. 
It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Christians forgive faults in others because they know the forgiving grace of God who has forgiven their faults in their own lives. It's a theme of Scripture and one we see in the life of Jesus. And it's hard not to employ this very often. Like, it's very difficult for us to use this. But it's this thought. Why are you not willing to be wronged? And when our lives are saturated and permeated with the love of God, we cover over a multitude of sins. As stated a moment ago, that proverb implies a loving community is able to tolerate more differences forgive more wrongs, grow into more effective praying exiles, it will inevitably be a community marked by its hospitality and warmth. Because when we're covering sin and we're covering things instead of broadcasting them and making shame be the mark of our place, all of a sudden there's a greater sense of warmth and security and hospitality. Love is a perennial solution to problems in the Christian community called the church. We don't call on it sporadically. We don't use it occasionally. We don't pray for love to be present when we've tried everything else and things have gotten totally out of hand. No, Peter's saying, in light of the fact that everything is progressing towards the end, love is what we ought to pray for all the time because it is above all virtue. I love how One theologian says it this way, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. Peter then gives a few more ethical behaviors as a result of his imminent return, and I'll close. Verse 9 through 11, offer hospitality one another without grumbling. Sometimes I can offer hospitality, but it ain't without grumbling. You can ask my wife. And hospitality isn't just baking cookies. It is having an openness to your heart and your life that says, I'll invite you in to the family of God like I was invited into the family of God. Each of us should use whatever gift that you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Whatever gift you have is a gift of grace from God. You didn't earn it. He gave it to you freely because of his love for you. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. I don't have time to go into all of these things, but I will mention about speaking this morning. Verse 11, what if whatever we said, like what actually came out of our mouths, was only what God was saying through us? That would certainly limit a lot of our talking and conversations, and it would shut down Twitter, Facebook, and threads all in one day. It would be an outworking of what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes when he says, don't be quick with your mouth. Don't be hasty with your words in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you're on the earth, so let your words be few. Bottom line, our words and our actions should match up, is what Peter's saying. If we speak at all, then we should do what we say. 
The person who understands who God is will, however, be careful with your words altogether. In fact, those who know God well understand there's much more important that what he addresses here is much more important that God addresses us than we address him. It's much more important that he speaks to us than we speak for him. But when he does speak to us, we speak for him. This is why in the Old Testament, the first requirement laid on the people of God was not speak, O Israel, but hear, O Israel. Your Lord, your God is one God. That exhortation is a common one and an insistent one in the Bible. Because without hearing, there could be no understanding of the kingdom of God. And with no understanding of the kingdom of God, what Peter is saying is then, well, don't talk. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The time for speaking is going to come, and that's why he's saying also of what we speak. And in this case, he's talking maybe about the, the job of being the pastor or the teacher or maybe prophetic or maybe even tongues. I don't know. But he's talking about the words that we pray and the words that we speak because that time does come. And the speaking to God that follows from our listening to God always bears in mind who God is, a father who knows what we need before we ask. So that's why Jesus said, you don't have to go on with all kinds of words acting like you know something that you don't know. Don't babble like all these other people trying to impress everybody with their prayers. He knows what you need, but you do go to him with prayer, being alert and sober-minded. That holy God certainly is there loving and caring. He's a caring father whose holiness has redemption as its utmost goal. And in this case, he's giving us an invitation to embrace that holiness in how we live towards one another. So what do we do? My prayer and my hope as I was reading through this is that, yes, we would love above all and that we would be hospitable, meaning we would open up our hearts and our lives to any and all and that we would use our gifts. I don't have time to go into it, but if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, then at that moment of regeneration, the Holy Spirit has deposited gifts within you by his grace and for you to not use them is what Paul would say is being, it's vain. It's like it's vain that God gave you something to use through you and you're not using it. Serve each other in the body of Christ. But if we would do all of those things, understanding first and foremost that the reason that we love is because God first loved us. The reason that we're hospitable and we extend mercy is because God first extended mercy to you and I. And the reason that we use the gifts that God's given us is because why wouldn't you use a gift from the Heavenly Father that He's placed in your life to bring honor and glory to His name by loving and serving others? Seems selfish not to do that. So I'm encouraging you, church, that the end that we're progressing towards, because we're always progressing towards the end, we're one day closer to it. That we would live with that in mind, that we wouldn't freak out, we're not going to get frantic, we're not going to get frenzied about it, but we're going to be alert and we're going to be sober-minded in how we pray and we're going to discern how God's going to help us to love one another, to be hospitable to one another, to exercise our gifts together as the church to the praise of God through Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do, church. So as we sing this last song this morning about receiving the love of God, I want you to understand that that is the truth of what has to happen before you can then have love being above all virtue in your life. You first have to have received the love of God in order to export and give the love of God to one another. But because of what Christ has done, that's finished, you can receive the love of God, and many of you have. 
So let's pray and ask God to move through us that we would love one another, that we would serve one another, that we'd be hospitable towards one another, that we would use our gifts to praise God in the name of Jesus so the church could be the church that we're called to be. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. First of all, I'm so grateful that you have covered my sin. Lord, you have clothed us with garments of righteousness. You put a robe over us and you covered our nakedness and our shame. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, your blood has washed us clean. This morning as we sing about receiving your love, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded anew that you love us with an everlasting love, that everyone in this room, with every head bowed and every eye closed, that you understand, that you sense, that you feel today that the love of God is for you. He's poured his love out upon you through what Jesus has done on the cross. And if you've received that love today, then you can ask God by his grace to empower you to live in such a way with one another in this body to bring honor and glory to his name, that we would love each other well above all. Father, help us to do that. And maybe today there's some things that you need to cover as you love each other well. Things that you need to cover for a brother or sister. A stain, a spot that you say, you know, we're just going to cover that so we can all just be one. Father, would you help us to discern rightly today to love you as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand to our feet, church. Let's worship Jesus together. Thank you for listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocus Church.